Well, ladies and gentlemen, here it is, and here we go. Year 10 of the Inside EMS podcast. That is right. This is our 10th year anniversary. By the time we get to May, we will be at 10 years. Missing today is our good friend, Kelly Grayson. He is on the EMS World Tour, bringing his knowledge, skills, and ability to train the next generation of EMS practitioner. We miss him today, but have we got a show for you. We have got the legal powerhouse coming to us from Paige Wolfberg and Worth, Steve Worth, Doug Wolfberg, and we are going to talk about this Earl Moore Jr. case that everybody is talking about inside EMS. But Steve, I want to welcome you to the show first. Doug, I want to welcome you second. I think we're going to have a really great discussion here. But before we get started, Doug, maybe I'll go to you first, even before I ask you a question. I mean, what hits you about this case first? Just the the callous, cold, very detached way, uh, aggressive, you know, just the whole demeanor of the providers. And honestly, how somebody go, you get into EMS because you care for people. How do you get from that point to, to what we saw in the video? That That's really where I keep coming back to. That's my first take. Yeah. And it was one of the things that you look at and you say, absolutely right. I mean, where, where is this breakdown? Right. And, uh, but Steve, I, I don't want to jump on you. I want to get your first thoughts as well. When, when this first came about, I'm sure you're sitting there and you're looking and reading uh, what comes across your mind. Well, it wasn't until I looked at the video that I felt outraged, outraged. It was the word that comes to my mind. How could a human being take deal with another human being in this fashion? Uh, you know, basically treat another human being as uh, an animate object, you know, and that was just outrageous. And uh, the callousness, as Doug mentioned, it's just, you know, how does this happen? And that's what we're here to talk about, because we can't allow this to happen. Uh, we can't. You know, there's a couple of things that I bring up and, and Doug, maybe I'll kind of push it your way first is what have we learned from the Eric Gardner cases and what have we learned from the George Floyd cases and what have we learned from the fact of who knows what call we're now going to be in the news about, right? I mean, these guys go ahead and take a call, a routine call in the middle of the night, somebody who's drunk, they need to go to the hospital. And who knows now that we are going to be in national news, that we are now going to be facing, you know, criminal charges. And, and where does this really come down to now from an EMS side of where are these lessons that we're supposed to pick up and, and bring forth to our workforce? You know, one wonders if the lessons of the Garner case and the and the other cases that you mentioned have been lost on uh, practitioners around the country. I think, you know, the whole idea that everything you do is being recorded in some way, shape or form should really be implanted in everyone's mind. I mean, that that's first and foremost. I, I would hope that we would act with kindness, compassion and competence, even when cameras are, are not present. Right. But I think when when providers do these kinds of things in real time, they don't think, well, now I am I am acting in a way that's going to be on the news and I'm going to be the center of discussion across the country in, you know, in a mere 12 hours or whatever. That's not what they're thinking about. But, um, you know, the fact that there is that you recording devices are so pervasive and so ubiquitous, um, how would we we feel if our conduct was being displayed on the news in a courtroom? Uh, in the court of public opinion, and would we be proud of it? And, you know, the lessons that come out of the Garner case and and the Earl Moore case and all the other cases um, is that this is conduct that really nobody can be proud of. And those lessons have definitely been lost. 
Right. I mean, when we think about it, we, we talk, Kelly and I talk about it all the time on the show. You know, we could teach skill, we could teach knowledge, but what we can't teach is compassion. And really, that really comes to the point of in your career, I, I think we all are a little bit uh, maybe egotistical in the beginning. Maybe we are a little bit uh, put off by some of the things. But as we go on in this in this career and make it a career, we start to have different feelings. But, you know, maybe the same kind of question to you, Steve, when we think about the lessons that we should mm -hmm. have learned, right? I mean, you and I have talked about Eric Gardner. You and I have talked about George Floyd. And right. now when we think about this from the standpoint of we have to do a better job of doing the business of the business, what are we missing here in EMS? Well, we're missing, we're forgetting why we got into this in the first place. And I think that's the fundamental problem for some people. We're public servants. Our duty and obligation is to the patient 100% of the time at all times. And if we haven't committed to that, then we shouldn't, have, shouldn't be involved in this uh, profession. One thing you said about compassion, I, I'll differ a little bit with you because I do think you can teach compassion. I think you teach it by setting expectations, doing good training, hiring the right people with the right attitudes, as you mentioned. But uh, a lot of this comes down to leadership and the culture of the organization. And when we see bad situations time after time and our folks are exposed to people at their worst possible moments, they're being spit at, thrown things, things are thrown at them, they're yelled and screamed at, it, it's difficult, okay? But they got to learn to deal with those situations. And we as leaders need to provide them with some of the tools and some of the techniques to deal with these things. And there are programs out there. There's things we can do. Yeah. You know, so I, I do want to talk about this legal aspect of this, right? And I don't know specifically about this case, but one of the things that we're starting to see more and more of, you know, certainly the nurse that had the challenge with the Pixis, and now there's been a couple of EMS, uh, you know, uh, practitioners that have been charged with crimes with giving the wrong medication or giving too much of the medication. And now in this case, case in Springfield, Illinois, and Doug, we're starting to see more and more that EMS practitioners aren't as safe as they used to be when it comes to uh, possible legal jeopardy because of negligence. I mean, what are the, some of the things that we need to start to think about now to keep ourselves out of these uh, situations? And then, you know, if we get into them, what are we supposed to do about it? Yeah. So, I mean, I, first off, I'm not sure I would say if there are more of these incidents, we, we're seeing more high profile criminal cases against EMS practitioners, but I think a lot of the conduct that's leading to that has probably been happening more in the dark or in, in silence outside of the reach of cameras and recording devices. I think now a light is being shined on some of the bad conduct. I'm not, I'm not saying that EMS has been rife with this for decades and we're, you know, it's a, it's a profession that's riddled with that kind of conduct, but it probably happens more than the cases that rise to the level of the six o'clock news. So I think the, you know, the ubiquity of the cameras and the recording devices uh, gives prosecutors um, particularly in the post-George Floyd era, really more tools with which to, um, you know, seek justice. And that's what the job of the prosecutor is. And when they see these injustices on, you know, color video in front of them, that they can see the conduct in real time, it makes their task a little easier. Prosecutors are, are, are charged with um, making discretions, determinations, using judgment and discretion about whether a crime has been committed. And, you know, you mentioned negligence. And what's happening here is that these cases uh, like Elijah McClain, like Earl Moore Jr., are, are transcending the idea of negligence, where if there's a bad outcome, a family or a survivor 
or the patient sues the, the practitioners for, for negligence, for damages. What happens is when prosecutors think that the conduct transcends mere negligence, that this is worse than just negligent conduct, then that's when we get into the realm of crime. So it, the prosecutors have to sort of get into the mind of the perpetrator, you know, the defendant, and say, is this a guilty mind? But what I would say, Chris, and where all this is going is this. Every EMS practitioner has the ability to control that outcome by displaying conduct that shows they did not act with malice or a guilty mind. All of us have the ability to control how we display uh, our behaviors and how we model those for others. And I'll tell you what, if you're a prosecutor sitting down and looking at the evidence and trying to decide if this was mere negligence or something worse, and you see a video with somebody yelling at a patient, swearing at a patient, not performing any basic assessment or treatment skills, you know, other than shouting at the patient and throwing the patient onto a cot and doing those kinds of things, your decision as a prosecutor becomes a lot more black and white. If the video shows we're trying to do our best, we're communicating with the patient, we're using, you know, we're being, you know, we're, we're practicing empathy, you know, we're doing those things that are just basic human decency and, and standards of care. A prosecutor is not going to be able to make the conclusion that you ad acted with malice, but hand them a tape like the ones we saw in the Earl Moore case. You've just given them a roadmap to a prosecution. So instead of EMS providers sort of withering under the pressure of saying there's too, you know, the stakes are too high now, there's too many of these prosecutions, each and every provider has the ability to control for themselves how a prosecutor might perceive their conduct. Yeah. And I think you bring up a really great point. And, you know, perception is something that we really have to be able to pay attention to. You know, Steve, you brought up something I thought was really interesting. And, you know, we talk about the training and and what we go through as EMTs and what we go through as paramedics. And then we kind of put that leadership on top of it. And you and I are big students of leadership. We talk about leadership a lot through our work with NEMT. And, you know, are we failing our paramedics in the field and our EMTs in the field because we're not giving them what they need to be successful. You know, we have a shortage, you know, it's the great resignation. It's the quiet quitting. It's the, all these yes, things that we're right, doing right, now. Right. And we're trying to yeah. put as many people in the field as we can. There has, something has to give here. And it may have to be even as simple as going back to the schoolhouse to say how we're training these folks. But I'd be interested in your opinion from the leadership aspect. Yeah. Excellent point. And um, before I jump into leadership, to elaborate on what Doug just said about we have the ability to control our actions. Attitude is everything. When we teach uh, risk management and the liability issues, the reality is most lawsuits are based on a poor attitude that leads to bad conduct. Attitude's everything. Life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we react to it. And uh, one of the messages we send out is, look, don't take things personally and, and control your actions. Now, onto the leadership side of it, yes, I think we have failed our providers to an extent. We haven't always provided them with uh, adequate training, especially when it comes to confronting bad behaviors, how to deal with implicit biases that we all have, because when we're constantly getting called at 2 a.m. for the intoxicated person outside the mini-mart in a pool of vomit, we start to treat people poorly because of the way we see them, okay? 
And what we have to remember is leaders have the responsibility to set the culture and to not tolerate that kind of behavior. Part of the big problem we have in EMS is if you've got five trucks, ambulances out on the street with two people in each of those ambulances, each of those ambulances representing your entire company. It all comes down to the actions of those two people on that one call. And we used to say, hey, you're only one call away from a $10 million jury verdict, okay, from a civil side, because that's was the biggest risk. Now you're only one call away from a $10 million jury verdict or a charge of criminal homicide or first degree murder. And, and maybe we need to emphasize to our folks too that murder, okay, in this context of this case, as we think about it commonly is the intent to kill somebody, okay? Well, beyond that, most state statutes say murder also is when you conduct yourself in a way where you know that your actions uh, have a high probability of harming another human being. And that's where we are here, and we need to emphasize that. Leadership needs to get out on the street, take a look and watch what their people are doing, and train supervisors not to look the other way. We see this when we go visit agencies. Far too many supervisors, they're stressed out and busy and just trying to fill the seats with warm bodies now, as you know, and, and they observe bad behavior and they don't do anything about it. We've got a duty to act. We've got a duty to train everybody that we're accountable for our own actions. We need to question ourselves and, and to stop behavior on our own volition. Secondly, question each other when we see you know, uh, our partner doing something harmful to a patient and take responsibility for our actions. And that seems to be a big issue here. In the article, we talk about a failure in accountability. And that seems to go beyond this, these two crew members. It, it has to go beyond that. Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, I call that the moment of truth where you bring up where we have the, you know, we have the employees in the field after they leave us, we're going to trust that they're going to do the right thing, right? You know, That's we right. can say we have the best leadership, we could say we have the best protocols and policies, but really the implementation comes in when these folks are in the field, and they have to be able to do the work. You know, so Doug, when we think about this, and I kind of know your expertise and uh, from, from a legal side, we find ourselves in these situations that we shouldn't find ourselves in that we can control. I mean, what are we supposed to do? How do we react? How, how are we supposed to go? I can't imagine, you know, certainly what the family is going through with the loss of a loved one. But now we have two other families that now have to go through this challenge of uh, a legal case and possibly, uh, you know, conviction. I mean, what are we supposed to do here? You know, this is a human, you know, tragedy across the board. I mean, while we certainly grieve for the family and, and for Mr. Moore, you know, you just pointed out a, a great point. There's there's human tolls being taken here by the on the part of the two EMTs uh, and the part of the, their families, their company, you know, their EMS agency. You know, but I think from the agency standpoint, you know, with the kind of work we do, I think agencies have to hit this head on. They have to be direct about it. You know, the, the worst thing in the world, I think, would be to put out a press release and, you know, we we're investing, we're looking into this matter. You know, we we believe our employees always uphold the standard of care that's expected, you know, talking points and PR stuff. You know, we have to acknowledge when when service did not meet expectations, when clinical care fell below standards, you know, when things are just that patently obvious, we shouldn't try talking points or you know, to PR our way out of this. There, there may be cultural issues. There may be training issues. Um, look, this is a very difficult time for employee recruitment and retention. Uh, some companies are, you know, their standard, and, and I have no 
comment particularly on this company, but I'm saying when when times are that difficult for employee for employers recruiting and retaining people, um, you know, they may just be so grateful to have the staff that they may not be still focused on the clinical quality. Again, without commenting whatsoever about this organization's practices, if our criteria in our in our profession are a pulse and a patch, right? We'll take whoever we can get. We are going to set ourselves up for these kinds of colossal, catastrophic uh, failures. Um, so we have to confront this head on. We have to look at the issues that go into that. You know, one just last point here, Chris. I've read comments on on our article and some others uh, comments, you know, around social media about this case, where people say, "Well, what do you expect with what we can pay people, and you know, with the difficulties we're having?" You know, I see people who sweep floors and clean tables who have positive job attitudes and, you know, who, who conduct themselves, you know, with integrity. I, I, I still do not see a strong correlation, nor should there be between, you know, I don't think I get paid enough. So therefore I'm going to give less than my best. Um, So that's a cultural Mm -hmm. um, cycle that has to be broken. Uh, I, everybody wishes we could afford to pay EMS practitioners what they're worth. uh, But I don't think that means, we have license to give less than our best. Uh, I don't accept that as an excuse. I think that's a failure of culture, not a failure of economics. And really, I think it's a, a failure of the individual, right? Because no one can cause me not to be professional. No one could cause me not to give my very best. No one. So if I don't like my leadership, if I don't like what I'm getting paid, if I, that doesn't affect how I do my job, right? I choose to do it or I don't. I need to be the best professional possible and not let anybody else influence my professional reputation. You know, uh, Steve, you talked about it before. I mean, uh, you know, 90% of uh, what we do is uh, you know how we react to things is how we react to things 10% is just affecting us and that's the only thing that we really can control and i think that we're missing this component of you know what we can control and how we can be the best people possible you know people will say to me all the time well my leaders don't do the skills that you talk about chris well you know what don't allow those people to affect your professionalism and i think we forget that yeah, and as Jim Page said, EMS is the most noble job of all professions. And the power we have to positively affect the life of a, of a human being is immeasurable. And uh, we need to remember that. And wow, if it, it's just in our attitude, it's it's being positive, it's being friendly, uh, upbeat attitude, give 110%. These are the things that uh, we need to do. And that is an individual responsibility. And I think... Uh, we are in an era now where there's greater transparency, as we talked about. Everybody, we've got body cameras, but everybody's got these phones, you know, with, uh, you know, the cameras that are that are we're watched, you know, and we should conduct ourselves as if we're always being watched, as Doug said earlier. Right. And I think the public expects more of us today in this environment because of these things, because of the visibility we've seen toward EMS during the pandemic. That's a good thing because I think people are recognizing the value of EMS and how important it is to their communities more so than ever before. But I think it also raises the bar a bit in terms of what the public expects of us. And we need to be talking about this with our crew members. Everybody throughout the entire organization have to be focused on, you know, the ultimate goal of doing the best we can for the patient 100 percent of the time. And um we have a friend in New Jersey, uh, Andy uh, Lovell from Gloucester County EMS, 
you know, he does orientation with his folks. And, you know, you, you, you sort of say, you know, do you have to tell people that this is their job and they have to take good care of patients and be kind and respectful? Absolutely, you do. <laughs> you know, it's a constant process. Andy, when he does his orientation, he's got this sheet, Andy's expectations of all the things they expect. And that's important for leadership to convey. Number one on the list, patients and incident responses are not an interruption of our day. They're the reason we exist. And don't you forget it. I mean, that's we, we need to instill yeah. that constant, constant reminder to people because they're faced with so many negative situations that it's easy to go astray and it's also easy to develop that us versus them mentality, right. us versus management. They don't give us the tools to do our job. They work us too hard. Us versus these patients that call us in the middle of the night when they don't need us. What, right. what a waste of our time, as was heard on this video in this Moore case. Right. Uh, we have to make sure that's addressed. Yeah, I agree. So, Doug, in your response earlier, you did mention the article that you guys wrote you know, this happened earlier in the week and uh, January 11th, uh, Paige Wolfberg and Worth put out the EMS legal update, uh, malpractice or murder. When do EMS providers cross the line from negligence to crime? We're going to put that in our show notes, but maybe just give a little highlight about the article, some of the things that you covered and some of the takeaways that the uh, listeners can get from it. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. So, yeah, we we did, you know, it was really just a few hours after these charges were publicly announced. Uh, we got our hands on as much of the documentation uh, and public record as we could. Excuse me. That included the uh, the various uh, body cam videos, which, of course, many of your viewers and listeners have seen uh, the autopsy report um, and then, you know, uh, other public records that we could we could muster up here. So we did a pretty thorough review of the facts uh, based on that documentary evidence. So there's a there's a you know pretty thorough summary of the case of the facts, but then we really talk about the the basis for the criminal charges. And as we touched on a little bit earlier, when does something that we might have thought about as negligence become criminal? And we provide a legal analysis on how a prosecutor puts all of that evidence and all of that uh, that material into you know into the mix and on the other end of that has to make a judgment about whether or not a crime was committed and if so at what level was that crime committed was it negligent homicide was it intentional homicide is it first degree murder as in this case and we then we connect the evidence here the 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 just abhorrent conduct that we saw from the practitioners on the video here and how a prosecutor in making that decision says well now i see evidence of the guilty mind, as lawyers call that. And that's how the decision-making process went from this incident to the filing of first-degree murder charges. Uh, and we talk about some lessons that EMS practitioners can use uh, from this case, the, the, the biggest of which is that you can, again, control when a prosecutor sits down and watches a video of you, it was entirely up to you how you acted on that video, even if you didn't know a video was being made. Right. Um, you had the right to control that. You had the ability to control that. Now you've put it out there and now a prosecutor's looking at it. So in, in the article, we, we've tra traced the facts of the case, what the evidence shows, how a prosecutor would come to a decision about charging a crime in this case, uh, and then ultimately what the lessons are for the EMS providers. It's, yeah, a, it's a pretty thorough read, yeah. but uh, 
I, we'd like to think it's must read for any any providers or leaders that are out there today. And you know, what's funny is when you when you look at an article, you say, how long is this article going to be? How much time do I need? But what was really interesting about the article is once you start reading it, you can't stop because you really kind of take us through that process and you guys did an amazing job. And as we're getting up there in time, I wish we could talk all day. Uh, but yeah. Steve, I'm going to come to you and I want to ask, get your final thoughts on this case, maybe advice to EMS. Doug, I'll, I'll finish up with you as well as that if you want to start to gather your final thoughts. But what do you leave the listeners with, Steve, in this situation and maybe the best advice you have for them? Well, first off, leaders have the responsibility uh, to take action to prevent this from happening. And they need to evaluate, as we talked about, some suggestions there for leadership. But from the standpoint of the EMS practitioner, it's not complicated. Be nice to people. Be kind to them. Treat them the way you would want to be treated or the way you would want your loved ones to be treated. And I'll leave with this item I saw, as Doug mentioned, lots of response to this across the board. Uh, I saw this on Joseph Salkin's uh, page, our good friend from North Carolina. This, this sums it up. Your job is not to judge. Your job is not to figure out if someone deserves something. Your job is to lift the fallen, to restore the broken, and to heal the hurting. And that's the essence of our job. And that we need to remember every time we go out on a call. And that's our advice for EMS practitioners. Yeah, I think that's great final advice. And Doug, I mean, your final word, what do you leave the listeners with? Listen to Steve Worth. I mean, I don't, I don't know how one can, <laughs> one can top that. Uh, but, you know, my, my last thing is it's just bat and cleanup here. It's just one thing that we hadn't really gotten into. I just want to make sure it gets mentioned here. And that is, Again, I ha I don't know these practitioners. I don't know their agency. I don't know you know them personally. I have no comment on on whether or not they had improper motivations here that were racially based or for any other reason. That said, um, you know, Mr. Moore was black. The practitioners here were white, and if the practitioners were black and the patient was white, or if we were talking about uh, Asian Americans, or if we were talking about Hispanic practitioners or patients. I, th I think this would, what I'm about to say would be the same. We have to start to recognize and, and be more aware and more cognizant of unconscious bias. And the term unconscious bias is, is just that. It's not meant to assign blame or guilt or impugn anybody's motives or integrity. We all as human beings carry our own biases, our own beliefs, our own preconceived notions. Steve said earlier, if you have somebody who's vomiting at three in the morning in front of the convenience market, we may think we we know that person's story, right? That they're weak and that they abused alcohol or drugs and that they made bad choices. We don't know their story. We bring those biases uh, without knowing anything about them. The, the important thing about these kinds of cases is if this was unconscious bias in action, it's also a case study in recognizing it, not recrimination, not, not you know, uh, holding some, you know, well, you're evil because you have these thoughts recognize that we have these thoughts, deal with them, and recognize when those can impact our actions and how we can minimize and neutralize the impact of unconscious bias in, in what we do. We can't do that. We can't neutralize it until we're aware of it. So it really starts with self-awareness. I think that's also an important leadership prerogative, uh, an important leadership uh, skill that, that we start to teach and become aware of unconscious bias. But that's the only, you know, the other sort of thing that we didn't mention previously here today that I wanted to make sure was brought out. 
I mean, I think that's a great closing thought. I mean, for me, my closing thought for everybody is I want to talk about Ferguson, Missouri, Charleston, South Carolina, Springfield, Illinois, New York City, uh, um, Minnesota. I mean, who expects that these cities are going to be part of national news? I mean, I certainly didn't in that faithful day in uh, July of 2014 when Ferguson, Missouri hit the news. Where the heck is Ferguson, Missouri, everybody? We have to be able to know that the very next call we're on could make national news. And we've got to be able to ensure that our actions are going to keep us from getting on the news and now getting into legal peril. But I want to go ahead and thank our legal powerhouse from Paige Wolfberg and Worth, Steve Worth, and De- uh, D- 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 or Doug Wolfberg. I'm going to get it out, Doug. Don't worry. And for uh, Kelly Grayson, I'm Chris Sabalero. Go ahead and send us your comments, your questions, your concerns at the show at ems1.com. And for Kelly Grayson, I'm Chris Sabalero. We'll check with everyone next week.